So we were talking the other day. I said, Nikki, did you make your appointment yet? And she said, no, I, I need to do that. And we were talking about, well, maybe we should do it together. Um, and so we're figuring that out right now. Like, are we going to go do it together? Um, but we were joking about, so now talking all that big talk. Now you got to walk the walk. <laughs> Hi, I'm John Yeager, and this is Bloodworks 101, the Anthem Award-winning podcast designed to educate or inspire you to donate either time, money, or blood. Okay, this episode starts with a series of three questions that we ask people when they come into a Bloodworks Northwest donor center, pop-up, or mobile unit to donate blood. Here's Dr. Kirsten Alcorn, our co-chief medical officer, with the first one. From 1980 through 1996, did you spend time that adds up to three months or more in the United Kingdom countries of, and then there's a list of countries that count as the United Kingdom. And if you were to say yes in the past, that would lead to some follow-up questions that could potentially lead to deferral based on the risk that we assigned to variant CJD. So another question we had was from 1980 through 2001, did you spend time that adds up to five years or more in France or Ireland? And that time spent in Ireland does not include time spent in Northern Ireland, which is considered part of the UK. And then the third question was from 1980 to the present, did you receive a blood transfusion in France, Ireland, England, Northern Ireland, or all the other countries of the UK. Dr. Alcorn tells me that the questions are designed to see whether you've been exposed to a rare disease called Crochfeld-Jakob disease, a rare brain disorder that leads to dementia and death. This also has a connection to mad cow disease, which Dr. Alcorn will unpack later. Mad cow disease, as you probably know, is a common name for a rare and deadly brain disease. It pops up in the headlines from time to time. Technically, humans cannot get mad cow disease, but according to experts, we can get a variant of the disease by eating food contaminated with diseased tissue of sick cattle. Why does Bloodworks ask these questions in the first place? Well, it has to do with that three-letter acronym that Dr. Alcorn dropped right there, CJD. Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Well, uh, classical CJD or Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease is a very rare disease. It occurs consistently around the world about one person in a million people. And about 85% of those cases fall into that so-called sporadic category. Then there's a small group that makes up 5 to 15% of the cases that come from so-called familial CJD, and that's where a family has a common genetic profile that makes them process the proteins involved in CJD differently. So they have a higher risk for getting the disease. Um, and then there are a couple of other much rarer um, syndromes where this can occur. So it's a very rare disease. And so far, we don't have strong evidence that it's found in blood or lymphoid tissue or that it can be spread that way but we also know that it can be um, spread through exposure to neurologic tissue that's infected. And so this other group of cases is so-called iatrogenic cases where it is spread through surgical techniques or the use of human growth hormone that was derived from other humans who were infected with CJD. Those cases are exceptionally rare, and the growth hormone thing, for example, the cohort of people who saw those infections were last treated with that, according to the FDA guidance document of 2022. 
They were last treated in 20, uh, sorry, 1977. So we're talking about a much older group of people and a, and a treatment that no longer really exists. And then um, duramater grafts are also pretty rare and coming from an infected person and so on. So CJD seems to have a low risk, but a theoretical risk of transmission through blood transfusion. So we wanna have some level of safety around that. What does this have to do with mad cow disease? So um, mad cow disease is variant CJD, which falls into that prion disease category. It looks a lot like CJD, except it has a different clinical presentation. And um, so it presents in younger people sooner after the potential exposure, has different symptoms and a different timeline of the course of illness. So it's different clinically, but it's related to the same kind of infectious agent. And that agent was recognized in the UK in the 80s. And then um, they had some number of people who had been blood donors who, um, who were later diagnosed with this disease. And they have followed the course of where all those donations went. And it looks like they may have as many as four people who look like they may have gotten variant CJD through a blood transfusion. Also, on the literature on VCJD, it looks like it has, in some cases, can be found in lymphoid tissue. Not necessarily in the blood, but in lymphoid tissue. And that's very closely associated with all of our blood cells and so on. So, not knowing a whole lot more about all the dynamics of that relationship, we put into place um, a protective mechanism for the blood supply in the U.S. There have not been any cases of VCJD or CJD, classical type, um, due to blood transfusion in the U.S. We have had some patients in the U.S. who were diagnosed with VCJD who had received blood transfusions or other exposures while in the U.K. So why is it being changed now? It's being changed now because we put in this deferral when all of this data was coming out to show that there could be transfusion transmission. And now that we've gone this many years, we haven't seen it in the US, it's dropped off in the UK, it's become a non-issue. I'm always telling people that uh, only 40% of us can donate blood and of that 40%, only 10% actually do. And I, I suspect that we don't need to give people another reason why not to donate. Well, of course that's true, and I, I think 10% of eligible donors actually donating is actually a pretty high estimate. I think a lot of people would estimate that that number is lower. Um, when this went into effect, it was estimated that it would decrease the eligibility of donors in the U.S. by about 1%. That's really what it boils down to, isn't it? You know, when, when you say it's 1%, I, I think, so maybe 1% could really help. I mean, it might make the difference sometimes. Well, 1% of 100,000 is a real number, right? <laughs> and um, the thing about having more people in the donor pool is that um, it means they can contribute. And if they do that on a regular basis, it's, it, it's a multiplier by however many times a year they can donate. But it also means those people are getting the opportunity and they're also probably talking to their friends and family about it. What 
what's this story all about for Kirsten Alcorn? I think it's about the FDA using science to update the criteria, and that's what we're always asking them to do. But there was something else the FDA looked at as they decided to lift this deferral, the COVID-19 pandemic. Absolutely. COVID-19 brought an immediate drop-off in blood donations all across the country. And the FDA responded with looking at a number of the medical criteria in the donor history questionnaire. And they looked for places like this where the change in risk would be nil to minimal. And they loosened up those criteria. They initially did it as a temporary intervention to help with the blood supply during that time period. This is one where they started to move in that direction and then they continued it as a second step in 2022. I think these are the main points, you know, that, that there's a medical reason behind each of the questions that we have and all of our donor screening steps are in place to make it safe for the donor to make the donation and safe for a patient to receive that transfusion. Meg Hall, for one, is happy the deferral is being lifted. Meg is the Director of Community Engagement for Bloodworks Northwest. As of January 18th, Meg will be eligible to donate again. Meg comes into this issue, well, of course, as a Bloodworks Northwest professional who understands how important blood donation is, but also as a mother. We, in our role here at Bloodworks Northwest, often see, work with, um, come to know uh, people, in particular moms, who have um, had um, children who have received uh, life-saving treatments due to blood being on hand when needed. And I, as a mother, just could never imagine um, where my biggest fear is not, gosh, did my kid remember their cleats for soccer practice or are they being diligent about their homework? But I can't imagine being a mother where the concern is, is my child gonna live? You know, are they gonna get the life-saving treatment that is needed? So if by donating blood, I can play a very, very tiny role in a mother not having to worry about is a doctor going to come in and say, well, there's a great re treatment we could do, but you know what, we don't have blood on hand right now. Um, if, if I can play a very tiny role in keeping that from happening, then that's what I'd like to do. How did she get deferred? So my father was in the Navy, and um, so we were over there. We lived in Scotland from 1980 to 1984. Yep. And Scotland's part of the UK. Exactly, so Scotland. Yep. They didn't and want Meg Hall's blood. Wow. <laughs> she works for us. Yeah. And it's amazing how many people, you would think it'd be a really small number of people that it would impact. And it, it may not be a huge number, but they're anecdotally, when you talk to people, inevitably, people have had conversations and, and uh, you'll meet somebody that'll speak up and say, I wish I could donate, but I can't because of that mad cow deferral. Um, so we're really excited to be able to um, allow a larger portion of the population to be able to donate life-saving blood. And as Meg Hall can tell you, every donation counts. Right now, as has been the case for the last few years, both locally and nationwide, there are not enough blood donors. The number of people that need blood and the number of blood products needed is much greater than the people donating blood. And we need to change that. I don't want to put you on the spot, but 
When's your donation scheduled for? <laughs> I haven't even, I haven't made the appointment yet. Meg's colleague at Bloodworks, Nikki Watkinson, is from the UK. Nikki's in the same boat. So we were talking the other day, I said, Nikki, did you make your appointment yet? And she said, no, I, I need to do that. And we were talking about, well, maybe we should do it together. Um, and so we're figuring that out right now. Like, are we going to go do it together? Um, but we were joking about, so now talking all that big talk, now you got to walk the walk. <laughs> I want to thank Meg Hall and Dr. Kirsten Alcorn. Remember the day, January 18th. That's the day the deferral will officially be lifted, which, as Kirsten and Meg both underscore there, could mean as many as 1,000 new donors available to the blood supply. If you have any questions, go to bloodworksnw.org forward slash donate forward slash eligibility. Well, that wraps it up for this edition of Bloodworks 101. I'm your host, John Yeager. See you next time.